All right, so we're gonna be in the book of Philippians tonight. Almost done with the book of Philippians. We're gonna look at chapter four, verses one through nine in a study I'm calling Stand Fast. Philippians four, one through nine. Now, you might not know this, but you actually might speak a foreign language. Now, you know, in most countries, they speak more than one language. United States, we speak, well, I mean, we speak multiple languages, but most people speak one language, American, right? Um, but, but, but you might know this, and, and you can rejoice in this, and I'm happy about this, me being who, someone who speaks Ebonics, I say, you actually can speak a foreign language. And I say this because often if, if you get into a conversation with techies, like if I ever talk to Gina or something, and they start saying things about compressors, and I think air-conditioned compressors, and they're talking about the soundboard, it sounds like you're speaking Greek. And, uh, you know, so they are actually speaking a, a foreign language. Now, I had another Greek experience when I started working on the base after high school. After high school, I graduated, and I got a job as a sanitational engineer, certified public space cleaner, also known as a janitor. It's just a nice name for a janitor. And my boss was a retired Navy man who never left the Navy. He really didn't. He never washed his cup, right? Never washed his coffee cup kind of let it resonate in there to get the good flavor, I'm told, from, uh, from sailors. And most of the words I try to forget because I'm a Christian now, <laughs> but there, there's other actual Navy terms that were actually Greek to me, and I actually had to learn what they meant as he would yell them at me. <laughs> Here's a couple quick Navy terms that you might not know. Shipmate, that's your coworker. A field day. That means you're gonna clean really well. FOD, there's FOD. FOD means that there's trash on the ground. Turn two means get to work. Grab a swab, which means get a mop. Where's the Cadillac? It's a mop bucket. You might not know that. Bravo Zulu, good job, right? Let's go to the chow hall or the galley, that's the cafeteria. Where's the head? That's the bathroom, right? Go scrub the bulkhead, that's the wall. There's stuff on the deck, that's the floor. Where's the gee dunk? That's the vending machine. And my favorite, where's the scuttlebutt, which is the drinking fountain? That's what they call a drinking fountain. And so I point this out because Paul actually uses another military term here in our passage. He uses the word stand fast. Stand fast, it's a military word. And the good news is that we don't have to be left in a deer in a headlight, you know, kind of like I was when my boss was saying to me. Paul actually teaches us what it means to stand fast, and he describes how we're to stand fast as we work through these verses tonight. So as we look at Paul's command in verse one to stand fast, we'll focus on two things. Number one, the definition of standing fast, and second, the description of how we're to stand fast. And so first, in verse one, we learn the definition of standing fast in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord Beloved. So Paul begins this chapter with the word therefore, and as we know, it links what was previously said to what Paul is saying now. Paul ended chapter three with talking about the believer's citizenship and the fact that Jesus is coming back with power to subdue all things, and he's also gonna transform our lowly bodies into glorified bodies. So in light of this, you and I are to stand fast. You see, the Bible is clear over and over and over and over that Jesus is coming back, and we need to guard our lives as a result of that. We need to stand fast in light of that. It's a 
it's a continual encouragement. Hey, Jesus can come at any moment. We need to make sure that we're ready, that we're watching and waiting. Now, I love that Paul here speaking this command doesn't speak it as a drill instructor, someone who's cold and just follows protocol, but he speaks these words as an enduring brother, as an enduring um, pastor. And we see this because he describes his love for these believers in a couple enduring terms. He calls these guys his beloved. And the word beloved means loved ones. And Paul, he really did love these believers. He called them his long-for brethren. This describes fraternal love. It describes the love that a brother or a sister has for one another. So just like we learned in that video, Paul, he thought of these guys as family. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ, right? People say blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than water. As we're in Christ, right, the Lord has united us in one body through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Also, Paul called them his joy and crown. I love that Paul didn't look at people as his burden and his thorn in the flesh. He said, man, you guys are my burden, my thorn in my flesh. He said, no, you're actually my joy and my crown. Now, we learned last week also that Paul lived his Christian life as a runner who ran his race in order to win the race and receive his reward. And now he kind of linked these believers and his love for them with, with that ministry, with that calling. He says, you guys are my crown. You guys are my joy. I'm running this race for you, in a sense. My joy is to see you one day stand in front of the Lord completed, and that'll be my joy. Yes, Paul did live for the crown of righteousness, as we learn about in 2 Timothy 4.8, but he also lived looking forward to seeing these believers finally completed and sanctified, stand in front of the Lord, you know, and being rewarded. Paul was, not a, Paul was not a blogger who just sometimes had to deal with people, you know, but, you know, he didn't say, okay, I got to deal with people so I can get back to the real ministry. People were his ministry. That's, the right, that's why he existed, is to serve people. This was his race, this was his calling, and it's really the calling of all ministry. If you think about it, what it really comes down to is people, and that's what the Lord has called us to minister. Whether you're teaching the word, God wants to minister to people. He wants to touch people's hearts. Whether you're serving in the cafe, the Lord is using you to minister to people through maybe the gift of hospitality or you know, the, just to be gracious. As, as people are in the world and they come into the cafe on a Sunday morning and they say, wow, this person's a Christian. We actually had that testimony um, a couple weeks ago. Someone told me and uh, they said, man, there was this person in the cafe serving and they were like, on anything I've ever seen, they were just so like, helpful and a servant and they were talking about someone in our church and it was just like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I was like, you know, praise the Lord, because they were talking about someone, how they were serving them on Sunday morning. It just really blew them away and how servant-minded um, they were. Also, you know, we, you know, whether you're the ground screw, the Sunday morning, whatever it is, we're serving people, and these people are the Lord's people. And ultimately, in the end, you know, we want to see them stand before the Lord rewarded and, and glorified. Paul also in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20 said this. He says, for what is our hope? or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. And so Paul was motivated by serving these people. He wanted to see them rewarded in front of Jesus. And this joy kept him pressing forward, running the race for the Lord's glory. Now this focus on eternity is what kept Paul moving forward even when he was in jail. Remember, Paul was writing this right now from imprisonment in Rome. Paul did have confidence 
in their prayers, as we learned about already in this epistle. He believed in that if, if it was the Lord's will through the prayer, the Lord would deliver them. But yet, truly, he really, didn't under, he really didn't know whether he would die at this time. But that being the case, Paul still ministered, even with all this going on um, behind the scene. And it just shows you God's grace and the fact that the Lord was able to keep him pressing forward by the focus on eternity and, and by standing fast in him. Now we come to the actual command, which is to stand fast in the Lord. This phrase means to keep holding on to a fixed or settled position. And as we all know, we're soldiers of Jesus Christ. The uh, Bible uses a number of different illustrations for the Christians. We're described as an athlete. We're described as an, in agriculture, sewing, right? We're described in um, architecture. We're, you know, we're the building of the Lord. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Also, we're described as a soldier. We're in the army of the Lord. And the moment we signed on with the Lord, that was the moment we became a soldier of Jesus Christ. And that's the moment why, when we need to make sure we stand fast in the Lord because we do have an enemy. We have an adversary who's continually seeking to take the ground away from us. Now the good news is we have the higher ground, right? We have the higher ground. We fight not for victory but from victory, but nevertheless, as we learned on Sunday morning, it is a fight. And we do have a real enemy who wants to attack. And we're to stand fast in the victory that the Lord has given us, the grace that the Lord has provided for us and we do that by abiding in the Lord and by abiding in his word. Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. He says, he says, stand fast, right? Stand fast in the Lord, in the power of his might. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so, yes, the Lord has given us victory. He's given us a sure footing. But nevertheless, we're not just to sit back and say, okay, we're on vacation now. No, it's a time to put on the armor and to stand fast and to stand strong because the enemy is gonna attack. In order for us to continue to stand strong, we need to follow Paul's instructions that he gives us now, these descriptions of how to stand fast in verses uh, two through nine. He says in verse two, I implore Iota and I implore Syneche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So now Paul calls out two women by name and he implores them both to be of the same mind in the Lord. I like that Paul didn't really take sides, but he exhorts both of these women with the same responsibility, he says, to be of the same mind. Now, what was the disagreement? Well, we're not told. Apparently, it must not have been doctrine because Paul would have pointed that out. He would have, you know, no doubt Paul has been addressing different doctrine in all of his epistles. So it wouldn't have been something that would compromise the Christian faith. It must have just been some disagreement over some non-essential issue. Rather than even getting involved in the issue, Paul takes the stand from the higher ground and says, hey, set your minds on the Lord. I implore you, set your mind on the Lord. Now, these women and this disagreement gone unchecked would have affected the church there in Philippi. It was beginning to affect it in which Paul thought it was necessary to even call these people by out by name. Here's Paul writing from Rome. The pastor's up there reading his letter you know, and these women's names are addressed from, you know, the reading. Now, disagreements have always been around since the church began. Even after the day of Pentecost, the church was filled with the Spirit. God was expanding the church. Believers were, you know, doing a great work. God was healing people. And then all of a sudden, there in Acts 6, a disagreement began in the church. 
between the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows. The um, Hellenists thought that they were being overlooked and neglected for the distribution of, of funds and, and for them. And so this, a murmuring began. And from the text, it would, it would appear that the murmuring, if it wasn't checked, it would continue to grow and grow until it was open division of the church. So already in the church, the enemy couldn't beat him from the outside, so he was trying to beat the church from within. And what did the apostles do? They once again took to higher ground. They really didn't even address the issue. They said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna focus on the word of God and prayer, and you guys are gonna work this out among yourself. And that's exactly what they did. The focus of the church has always been preaching of the word and prayer. It's always been the loss. It's always been people. And this is why Jesus encourages us to love one another and then to go out into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So if we're to stand fast in the Lord, we need to keep the main things, the main things, right? It's so easy for disagreements over non-important things to begin to fester and cause division. I mean, it's so easy for us to get caught up on one thing and make that our main thing. In reality, we need to make sure we take the higher ground and say, hey, you know what? We're in this for a lot greater purpose than ourselves. If we're to stand fast in the last days as a church and be effective and be a light in the community, then we need to remember the main things, and that's the gospel and that people are lost. And when we do that, we'll have the same mind. We'll keep our mind on the Lord, and we'll keep focused on him. So that's what Paul says. He said, hey, focus on the Lord. And as they did so, they would have the same mind. They would look at the greater priorities between, besides their own little things that were going on between them. Next, we learn that, that the whole church is to work together for eternity. Verse three, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so Paul's solution to this dilemma was for these women to be encouraged to take their eyes off their disagreement and put them on Christ in eternity. And the way that Paul said to do this was the laborers in the church, the servants in the church, were to come alongside of them and minister to them. That's how they do it. These people who were out preaching the gospel, these people who were out serving the Lord, Paul says, hey, deal with these things among yourself. So he calls out the leaders, first of all, in the church, his true companion. This is an unknown name. Some believe that the word true companion in Greek might actually have been the guy's name. He calls out Clement, who was probably another elder in the church, and then he calls out all the fellow believers whose names are written in the book of life. So really he calls them the whole church and says, hey guys, let's get together and let's deal with this thing from the inside. The church is to work together because we're the body of Christ. So we have a connection with one another and therefore we have a responsibility to minister one to another. You see, if there's division or sin, then we're to handle it. We're to minister to those people. You know, it's easy to say, well, I'm sure the pastors will deal with it. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll get dealt with, but it's not really my responsibility. I mean, if they wanna be lame and weird, well then I'll let them just keep on gossip and be lame and weird. No, if the Lord wants to use us to deal with the issue. You might say, well, I don't really know how to deal with the issue. Well, how did Paul deal with it? Paul said, hey guys, set your mind on the Lord. <laughs> set your mind on Jesus. Take your mind off your, your, your circumstances and set your mind on Jesus. Hey, live for eternity. Now, the good news also is that the Bible promises that Jesus will be with us if we're called to minister to a person like that. We all love that passage in Matthew 18 where Jesus said, when two or three or more are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. 
But really, if you read the context of it, he's talking about church discipline. As you go to a person in private and they don't repent and then you take with you another person and they still don't repent and then you call for the elders and they still don't repent. And the Lord says, hey, when two or three or more are gathered in my name, I'm with you. And so the Lord encourages us, hey, I'll be with you to encourage this brother and sister to set them on the right path to be strong. A sign of a healthy body is the ability to fight off infections from within. And the same is true for a church to stand fast in the Lord. If we start relying on other things outside of ourselves, the court system or whatever it might be, it's just a sign that we're not really strong. We can't really fight off infections from within. And Paul was encouraging these believers to do so. He says, hey, deal with it among yourselves. Now, before we move on, let me make a quick note about the phrase, your names are written in the book of life. This has caused some people some, some problems. As we read the Bible, we learn that names are written in the book of life from the beginning of creation of the world. Also, we're told that names of unbelievers will be blotted out. And, and in the end, those whose names are written in the book of life um, you know, will, will go to heaven, and those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, here's a quick summary. I think, I think it's a good summary. The names of saved individuals are written in the book of life before creation. Jesus says that names can be removed from that book of life. And so the book of life began in eternity past before creation as a record of all those who would ever have physical life in the ages to come. As individuals come to maturity, they're faced with the gospel, whether they'll choose to accept it or reject it. Those who receive Christ are confirmed in their position in the book of life, and their names are allowed to remain. Those who reject Christ have their names removed and blotted out of the book of life. And so it's nowhere teaching that only this certain few elect people have their names written in, everybody else will, sorry, there's no hope for you. No, but rather, the gospel has gone to all men, but it's only for those who believe whose names are gonna remain in the book of life. Now we're given another encouragement. In verse four, we learn that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice in the Lord, again I say rejoice. So twice Paul encourages you and I to rejoice. As we already learned in our studies, Joy is to be a characteristic of the Christian life. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, or to walk in joy, it's to characterize us. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that joy will come naturally to us. Some people just aren't naturally joyful, right? Some circumstances aren't naturally joyful. I mean, if we're honest, we're like, that's not a very joyful situation. But nevertheless, we are told that we can rejoice in the Lord because it's a command. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, and so if the Lord tells you to do it, then he'll give you the power to do it. So therefore, we can, we can have joy in our Lord. And Paul was able to have joy even in the midst of his imprisonment. If we're to stand fast in the Lord, then we're to remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what Nehemiah told the people in Nehemiah 8.10. He says, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if we're to march forward as Christian soldiers, well, then we need morale. And our morale doesn't come from discouragement and depression that comes from the joy of the Lord. Now we need to be careful of this weapon of the enemy, discouragement or depression, because it's a real weapon that the enemy can use against us. To try to deny it is, is, is foolish. I mean, the enemy does try to bring discouragement against us. But rather we need to recognize exactly what it is and rise above it and rejoice in the Lord's word and, and also in his power. You know, it always begins with discouragement. And then, you know, that it progresses more and more and more. We need to check our heart if we do have discouragement and to say, hey, you know what? The Lord is working. 
The Lord has given me joy, and I can have joy, so I'm gonna be like the psalmist. I'm gonna just gonna bless the Lord, even though I might be downcast or my soul might be downcast. Something good, and the Lord will produce joy in our lives. We might not understand how, but we're just to trust by faith that the Lord will. To stand fast, we must walk in humility and long-suffering. Verse five, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, the word gentleness doesn't imply weakness. Often we think that, we think gentleness, I'm a man. I'm, you know, that's weakness. Well, remember, Jesus was called gentle. He was called gentle and meek. The word gentle means the ability to bear with others and not retaliate against them. It can be described as the ability to give up your own way for what is right. So this attitude is really in contrast to the thought that I'm gonna die on every hill. I get, <laughs> it gets brought for me. This hill, it's my hill, I'm gonna die on it. R- regardless of what it is. I don't care if it's a non-essential issue, I don't care if it's my own personal opinion about what should be done or how things should be done. You're wrong, I'm right, and so I'm gonna stand. And that was totally in contrast to how Paul wanted these believers to live. He says, hey, be gentle with one another. In other words, be long-suffering with one another. Sometimes you might have to accept the right to be wronged. You might have to lay down yourself, lay down your pride, and just love others, even if you don't get along with them. The old saying, to reign in Christ, to reign in heaven with Christ will be glory, but to dwell with some saints is a different story. But the Lord will give us joy, and he will give us love for them as we minister to them and lay down our lives for them. Our motivation, once again, comes not from ourselves, but it comes from the Lord. The Lord is at hand. This implies two things. First, that the Lord is with us in his omnipresence. The Lord is everywhere and he's with us. He's, he's always with us. But also the fact that the Lord is coming back for us. At any moment, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming faster than soon. He's at hand. You know, and so we're, we're just waiting for the Lord and we need to stand fast in light of that. To stand fast in the Lord means we must beware of the danger of worry. Verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Put simply, the believer is to worry about nothing, but pray about everything. This is one of the first things that Jesus taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey guys, don't worry about things. Consider the birds of the air and you know, the leaves of the field. They don't worry about those things. Don't worry, it only strangles you. Remember the parable of the sower as you know, the seed was sown and the cares of this world choked out the fruitfulness of that plant. And that's what worry does to us. It causes health problems at times, right? But, but, but it also causes spiritual problems as we take our eyes off God who's sovereign and all powerful and put them on our own circumstances and situation. The enemy can use that to bring in discouragement and despair. The way that we defeat this is once again keeping our eyes on the Father, and that's what Jesus taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, won't your Father in heaven provide for you? You know, won't your Father in heaven who's good give to those who ask? I believe Paul really adds to this here. He tells us how to keep our eyes on the Father, as Jesus said. And the way that we keep our eyes on the Father and our heart in line with his is through prayer. God does amazing things through prayer, and Paul believed that. He believed that God can change things through prayer. But Paul also believed that God could change him through prayer. As we seek the Lord, the Lord will align our heart and our minds to him, and 
you know, and, and the Lord will help us trust him and take our eyes off our own circumstances and put them on him. Notice how Paul mentions prayer here. He uses the word prayer, which is a general word that means petitioning the Lord, just talking to God and, and seeking him. There's supplications or supplications, right, as it has been said, which is, make, that's the Raul Reese version of the Bible, he, as he comes back with great glory and great glory, you know. He makes requests be made known to God. Raul Reese probably come beat me up right now. Sorry, Raul, I love you, brother. I have to do it. And also, you know, and then Thanksgiving, which is to give thanks to God. We, we need, you know, we always know, we know about prayer. We know about talking to God, all right? We know about supplication, man. I, I, can, I got a lot of things on my list I need to ask God for. But sometimes we forget thanksgiving to God, just thanking him for who he is and, and all that he's done for us and being good. It's not thanking him after we get things, it's thanking him before we get things, just thanking him for being God. As we seek God in prayer, God will give us peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's pretty good. It surpasses all understanding. We can't really understand it. We can't fathom it. We can't realize the, the peace that the Lord will give us even in the midst of test times. This peace will also guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. And so if we're to stand fast in the Lord, then we need to continually seek the Lord in prayer. Don't let Satan steal the greatest weapon that we have in our arsenal as Christian soldiers by taking away prayer. How does he do it? By distraction, right? Phone rings, right? Your phone, oh wait, I gotta check my email. The, the weather, what's the weather gonna be like? Is it gonna rain this week? You know, and then you get on there and you, okay, I'm, you know, I'm done. You know, distraction, discouragement. Every time you go to the Lord, the enemy will try to come and start condemning you about things. Just know that that's the enemy trying to condemn you about those things. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He draws us closer to Jesus. The enemy condemns us. He tries to push us away from Jesus. Laziness, right? The disciples were sleeping when, the, when they should have been praying. As a result, they weren't effective when the trial came. We're to stand fast in the Lord and pray without ceasing. To stand fast, we must guard our, our minds in our hearts. Verse eight, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever the things are noble, whatever, whatever things are just, whatever the things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. William McDonald comments on this verse and says, you don't need to have to look very far to find Jesus Christ in verse eight. Everything that is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy is found in him. I mean, really, this is Jesus right here. And as we come to Jesus, we see all these things. But we know more about how we can find Jesus, and that's through the word of God. He says, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And this is why the psalmist was able to say in Psalm 19, verses seven through nine, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so how are we to think on these things? Are we to have to go in some trance, you know, meditate on these things? Very simply, we just come to the word of God and think about it and go over it and allow it to minister to us. As we do, we'll see Jesus in it. And as a result, we'll take our minds off the things of this world and put them on God. Verse nine, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. The God of peace will be with you. So finally, Paul says, hey guys, follow my example. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
We're to heed the things that Paul teaches us. They're not just his opinion. He's not just writing a blog, giving his insight. It's the inspired word of God that we're to submit our life to. As we do, we'll have joy and we'll have peace with God. So the Lord wants us to stand fast. He's given us the description for it and described how we're to do it. Amen.